Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Will you pray with me? Lord, on this night, you issued a new command, that we love one another as you have loved us. Would you give us the grace, the mercy, and most of all, the humility to do so, willingly submitting to your judgment? Amen. So this is Maundy Thursday. Uh, as Dan said, this is from Mandatum in the Latin, a command. And that command is from verse 34 in John chapter 13. Jesus tells his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And this really is an incredible statement. I think, unfortunately, we lose some of the impact because it's comfortable for us. We're used to it. We do this every year. And we really do have this bad habit of looking ahead to Easter and skipping over these next three days. But take a minute and consider what Jesus is actually saying right here. This is the Lord of all. This is the Son of God, the Messiah, who in just a few hours' time will be nailed to the cross and atone for the sins of the entire world in the greatest act of love ever witnessed. This is who tells the disciples, love one another like that. This gets dicey for us when we realize that this isn't just for the disciples then and there. This is a command for you and I as well, because this type of love is essential to the kingdom of God. This is a hallmark of the kingdom that God is bringing here to this earth. The whole story of salvation through the Bible is filled with types of love like this, examples of sacrifice that ultimately culminate, of course, Jesus on the cross. And that should really give us pause. I'd argue that to love one another as I have loved you is right there with be holy as I'm holy on this list of kind of like you're kidding me moments in the Bible, right? <laughs> this is the God of the universe who's telling me and you that we should love one another like him. This is something that you and I are wholly incapable of. Yet this is precisely what our Lord calls us to do. And frankly, it really is a bit of a paradox us. But I'd submit to you that paradox is not unusual for our faith. If you consider the very nature of God, you'll see on one hand a God of judgment, but also a God of unending grace. And you'll see a God of justice, who's also a God of love. You'll see a God who is fierce and who is mighty, but who is slow to anger and rich in mercy. God is able to hold together these polar opposites in only the way the creator of the universe can. And I think we're largely comfortable with these paradoxes because we recognize they're based in power. You and I don't have the power or the ability to hold these things together, but God, who is all-powerful, certainly does. Tonight, though, on Maundy Thursday, we come face-to-face -face with a paradox that we are far less comfortable with. A God who is all-powerful, who calms the wind and the waves, who created the entire earth by speaking it into existence, the God who the trees and the rocks cry out to, the God who has the power to hold together love and justice, grace and judgment. This God is humble. And this paradox hinges not on God retaining power, but on releasing it and giving it up. 
And I think this reveals something ugly in our own hearts. You and I, whether we want to admit it or not, we desire power. We cling to power. We want power. I think we're happy to humble ourselves before God because we recognize the power that God has. But we don't like it when God humbles himself before us because we recognize that God is king. He holds all power. And as members of his kingdom, I think we desire to take part in that power. That is nothing but a mark of our own pride. You see, our own humility does not begin with the willingness to give up our power. That presumes that we actually have any power to begin with. Our own humility begins with the readiness to receive, to sit in the discomfort of God in Jesus, wrapping a towel around his waist, removing his clothing, kneeling before us, and washing our dirty feet. If we can't receive the humility of God, then we cannot embody the humility of God. And if we cannot embody the humility of God, then we can never fulfill the command that he gives us tonight. To love one another as he has loved us is absolutely impossible without humility. The question, of course, is what is humility? Um, I had the honor back in February of being ordained alongside Melissa um, and Leah Wall. And in the ordination liturgy, the bishop exhorts the ordinands to share in the humility and service of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this comes before anything is said about what the deacon is supposed to do. The deacons are the servants of the church, right? Before he talks about um, any of the work a deacon should do, the deacon is called first to humility. Then Bishop Steve goes on to define humility as constantly standing before the judgment of God. Constantly standing before the judgment of God. That has stuck with me since he told us that. To constantly stand before the judgment of God is to allow God to examine our heart of hearts. It's to plumb the deepest depths of our souls. It's to shine light on the dark places that are within us. It's to blunt our sharp edges. It's to root out the sin that's taken hold in our lives. Constantly stand before the judgment of God is to submit readily to the will of God who presides over a kingdom that is not of this world and does not operate like this world. It is to lay our very lives before God and allow him to lead us, often to places we'd rather not go. We can only do this, we can only be humble, standing before the judgment of God if we recognize our true identity before God. If you open your Bibles to John chapter 13, you actually see two competing visions of what this looks like between Peter and Jesus. So on the one hand, you have Peter. As Jesus prepares to wash his feet, Peter responds incredulously. He says, Lord, you are going to wash my feet? And we give Peter a hard time um, because he's a little thick sometimes, but I think we have to give him credit here because he recognizes just how backwards this is. Jesus, the Lord, our teacher, our master, should not be washing our feet. This should be the other way around. But I think Peter uh, has enough pride here that he dictates to Jesus how exactly this should go. And Jesus, uh, in his incredible grace, gently rebukes him. And then in perfect Peter fashion, um, he refuses to do things halfway. Jesus says, I must wash you. And Peter says, well, if you need to wash me, then my hands and my head, all of me. But in this moment, Peter fails to recognize the dynamics that are at play. Jesus says to Peter, those who have had a bath 
need only to wash their feet, for their whole body is clean, and you are clean. Peter obviously doesn't understand who he is before God, and he doesn't recognize that this isn't just about his dirty feet or his dirty hands. There's something deep happening on a spiritual level here. Because of his blindness, Peter's unable to humble himself to even accept the humility of his Lord because he cannot fathom his own standing before God. He cannot even begin to entertain the idea that God sees him differently than he sees himself. Peter is too caught up in status and roles. If you read the same story in Luke, uh, the disciples are having an argument about who's going to be first in the kingdom, right? They're talking about these earthly things. And in the middle of that, they miss that Peter misses that Jesus is not just washing his feet, but he's washing his soul, and his soul has indeed been made clean. And brothers and sisters, if you have placed your own trust in Jesus and follow him as your Lord and Savior, you have also been made clean. This is good news. Because of Jesus' death tomorrow and his resurrection on Sunday, you are clean. You need to take heart in that and live into that truth. Because if you don't recognize that you're sinless before God because of your faith in Jesus, you cannot bear to stand before God in his judgment. Because your sin and my sin, our sin, is far too grievous. In fact, I'd argue the only way we can stand before the judgment of God in this deep humility is when we understand that God's final answer to us is mercy. So we have Peter on the one side, and then we have Jesus, who plays the foil to Peter. Jesus does recognize who he is before God, and that allows him to humble himself, even to death on the cross. We can't understand Jesus in this gospel passage without first understanding the wider context of the Gospel of John. This entire book, in a word, is concerned with who Jesus is, that he is God's son, that he is the chosen one of Israel. John 1 begins with calling Jesus the very word of God, and it ends with Jesus telling Nathanael that he'll see the very angels of God descend upon him. So in that context, the story begins acknowledging that Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. This is verse 1. Maybe more importantly, in verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So Jesus is well aware of the big picture of what's happening. He's privy to God's bigger plan and what he's going to have to endure in just a few hours' time. And he's confident in his standing before God. This is God's Son in whom God was well pleased. And then in verse 16, of course, Jesus reminds his disciples that no servant is greater than his master, and nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. God, of course, is the master, and Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the messenger. God is the one who sends him. Jesus knows who he is before God, and this allows him to humble himself fully. Again, in Luke's account of the same scene, not long after, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives to pray, and he's sweating blood, and he pleads with God, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But then he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. He recognizes who he is, and this gives him the ability to humble himself fully and fully stand before God's judgment and submit himself to the will of God. And of course, we know that God's will is done. Jesus is humbled completely. 
Yet the interesting thing is that Jesus is without sin, and so this entire process happens in reverse. Where we stand before God, sinful and dirty, Jesus stands before the judgment of God, clean, but God makes him dirty. The Father of heavenly lights paints Jesus with darkness. He breaks Jesus meek and mild and makes him jagged. He takes the sin that he's rooted from us, and he lays it on his Son. When we put our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, his perfection washes over us. And don't miss this, that we must be washed. Foot washing isn't just a matter of hygiene. In the ancient world, if you were not washed before the meal, you couldn't take part in the meal. And in verse 8, Jesus tells Peter the same thing plainly. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. After this scene, of course, like Dan read, Jesus is going to institute the Eucharist. This was our New Testament reading. And each Sunday, we listen to the priest recount this. He says, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body. And the cup is his blood. Jesus is the meal. And if we're not washed by him, then neither can we partake of the meal, and we too have no part with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, our Lord has given us a new command to love one another as he has loved us. And this is a weighty command. This is a difficult command. But the Lord has given it all the same. So I charge you to follow in his example. Humble yourselves before him. Stand before the judgment of God, knowing that Jesus has already humbled himself on your behalf. If you've placed your faith in him, he has taken your sin and you are clean before God. Therefore, go and live into your identity. Go and love one another as God has loved you. In just a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to put this into practice and wash one another's feet. But don't be like Peter and minimize this act of service. Don't miss what's happening. This isn't just a physical thing. There's something deeply spiritual about this practice. It's not just dirty feet. It's not just repetition. It's not just this quirky tradition that we have at this church. This is about the very essence of what it means to follow Jesus. So humble yourselves before the Lord and one another. In doing so, you take part in the very nature of God who, despite his power, lowered himself before us, became one of us, and died for us in the ultimate act of love. Brothers and sisters, love one another like that.